Welcome to this podcast called Curious About Recovery. I am Kirsten Honeyball. I am your host. And in this podcast, I will be diving deep into eating disorders, which are complex and challenging to navigate. So whether you're a sufferer, a professional, a family or loved one of a sufferer, you can join me as I get curious by interviewing professionals, chatting to eating disorder survivors and sharing my personal experience with an eating disorder so that you can better understand various perspectives remove stigma, hear inspiring testimonies, and simply get curious about all things eating disorder related. I would like to put out a trigger warning. These episodes explore the topic of eating disorders and some content may be triggering to listeners. Topics explored may mention, but are not limited to, trauma, diets, food and body types, suicide, mental illness, substance use, self-harm, violence, gender identification topics, and more. Please take care before listening to any episodes. It's important to note that this podcast is not aimed to diagnose, treat or cure any form of mental illness and should not be seen as a replacement for treatment of eating disorders. Everything said here is expressed in relation to personal and professional opinions and listeners should be encouraged to view these episodes as an open-minded exploration of various possibilities and perspective rather than hard facts and solutions. Please take what applies or resonates with you and leave the rest. And if you're struggling with an eating disorder, don't hesitate to reach out to me at Kirsten at kirstenhoneyball.co.za. So today we have Helena Brook with us. Thank you so much for being here. It's really special to have you on. So Helena is a licensed associate counselor and licensed associate marriage and family therapist in the state of Arizona. She holds a bachelor's degree in anthropology, which is the study of how humans came to be, and has a master's degree in marriage and family therapy and counseling. She has extensive training in narrative therapy and emotionally focused therapy and is actively engaged in the somatic experiencing practitioner training training program. She has had formal training in dialectical behavior therapy and completed a post-internship placement focused on experiential arts and gender care, which I'm very interested to hear what that is all about. And she presented on Eastern counseling modalities in the West at a jury conference and has completed extended training on diabetes distress through the Behavioral Diabetes Institute. So uh, there's a lot of stuff that is, you know, here to explain this wonderful person that we're going to meet, but uh, this is just the technicalities. I'd love to get to know you on a more personal basis. If you could just tell me about who you are, what you do, and why you do it. Well, first off, thank you so much for inviting me to this conversation. Um, It's a really cool project that you're doing, and I'm just, I'm really happy to be a part of it. I am a therapist in the Phoenix and Scottsdale area in Arizona. I like to work with people who are kind of like the, the oddballs and misfits and sort of people who just really are often pushed aside by, uh, by typical care, especially as care has become so structured and, um, and very rigid in its confines and very behavior based. And so I really like to sort of make a space for not only the clients who haven't really felt like they've had a space elsewhere, but also, um, create community and support for clinicians who might not feel like they quite fit in, um, in the therapist community. That's an incredible perspective. I've never heard something like that before. And and I'm so curious, you say, you know, people who feel like they don't really fit the mold um, in terms of a client basis. Like, so what, if you could maybe give me an example of a type of person who you might deal with. I work with a lot of people for whom therapy hasn't quite worked so well. I, you know, just off the top of my head, um, autistic clients who, you know, have had therapists who tell them, well, you know, you just need to expose yourself to this situation or that one. And it just causes stress and stress and stress or people who are dealing with other neurodivergences where, you know, they might not have the interoception on board that like, you know, a traditional therapist would expect is already there. Um, and it makes eating disorder recovery hard or, um, situations with, 
uh, you know, couples or families that don't quite fit the typical mold. And sometimes um, they've experienced therapy in the past where the therapist's biases or limits on their multicultural competencies might have gotten in the way of really being there for the clients in the way that they need. So um, kind of my favorite clients, you know. There's so many questions that are popping up for me. Uh, so I'll try and go through them one by one. The first is, you know, what motivated you to specifically work with this group of people? I think it started out when I was little, we, uh, we were part of a, a synagogue. I'm Jewish. And we had like the synagogue had a, a mascot that was a giraffe and the, and the, the, uh, the, the slogan was stick your neck out. So we were very social justice oriented and we were very into, um, you know, doing for community and something called tikkun olam, which is healing the world. Um, and then as I grew up and as I experienced like a move cross country and like, you know, starting college early and kind of not getting some of the social stuff, you know, things like that, it really kind of showed me what it was like, not just to be an outsider, but to to the way it feels to open the door when you have a position of, of privilege or insiderness and you can open the door to someone or a group that, you know, might not have that access. And it's, it's just, um, I don't know, very nourishing to my heart. And you know how, like when you're doing the work that it feels like you're meant to do, just like your whole nervous system just kind of feels in sync and it just feels like you're, you're on the right path. Uh, that's really cool. I don't think many people can say that about the work that they do. Um, so, I mean, I, when just scoping through your website, you know, you speak about people who are neurodivergent, you know, often I, and often I find my clients have this feeling that they're just not okay or accepted by others. And this is exactly what you speak into. You speak into this, not only do I experience something like an eating disorder or a mental health issue, but I'm also kind of, on the outskirts of what society de de deems as categorized in a specific way, you know. And um, you speak into this volunteer website when you say those who don't fit into the neurotypical mold are made to accommodate those who do. This can lead to distress, isolation, self-blame, self-doubt, and a breakdown in trust and attachment with family and caregivers, which is obviously, some, which is obviously something you've also spoken about, you know, this idea that sometimes people aren't fully equipped to be able to really help people who are not fitting any specific mold. You know, do you find that this is a common theme in people who struggle with eating disorders or, or is it something that's across the board or how do you see the overlays or the parallels in people who struggle with disordered eating? Oh, com completely. I mean, I think um, one of the things that people find with their, with their eating disorder behaviors is that you know, they're, they're a lot more, they're, they're consistent, you know, like you kind of, when you do whatever the thing is, whether it's, um, restricting or, um, eating for, you know, reasons that aren't, um, aligned with, you know, what you're wanting in life and things like that. Um, or, uh, all of the ways that eating disorders manifest. Um, I think people are drawn toward that and and when society and relationships and things like that sometimes don't feel okay especially when they feel like they're not measuring up or um people who are in positions of power in their lives whether parents teachers doctors you know uh sports coaches look at them in ways that that kind of tell them that they're not measuring up or they're not getting it or something like that and especially in situations where a person um, is neurodivergent in any number of ways, it can almost be like they understand the language, but they don't understand the idioms. And I mean, I, I don't know if that metaphor makes sense. It's almost like there are certain things that you don't get and you don't know that you're not getting it. And so, you know, relying on things that are more isolated and private can feel really effective, you know, initially, but then end up, you know, manifesting into just, you know, a stuckness and a compulsion and, and, and disorder. And it's really hard to find recovery when, you know, when it wasn't even safe, it didn't even feel safe to have those, those relationships and those supports in place. Um, when you weren't, um, uh, experiencing a mental health struggle or an eating disorder. I don't know if that made sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, it definitely did. I mean, 
what what comes to mind when you're speaking about that is this idea, and you can tell me if I'm on the right course, is this idea that a person who is maybe struggling with an eating disorder might be told by a therapist or counselor or, or some kind of professional, hey, why don't you try X, Y, Z? But that X, Y, Z thing that they're suggesting doesn't even make sense or they can't grasp or they don't understand the, the nuances of those elements and, and therefore can even cause more distress because it's now like, well, you're trying to help me, but the thing you're trying to help me with, I don't even get or, or I can't even comprehend. Yeah. Or, or it just feels out of reach or really vague. Like, and I'll just give you an example. Um, people tend to think that neurodivergence is just about autism and, um, and the autistic, um, self-advocacy community has done some really great work in bringing that stuff forward. And, um, and I think it would be a mistake to exclude autism from neurodiversity, but neurodiversity also includes, um, ADHD, um, even giftedness, learning disabilities, um, even, you know, a lot of things we would consider mental health issues, but framed in other ways. And if you look at ADHD, for example, I think people who aren't trained in it and don't really, you know, might not, might not understand the nuances. Sometimes it's not a deficit of attention. It's a, it's an overwhelming amount of, of attention to lots of different things. And one of the things that, for example, someone working with a, a teen who has an eating disorder might not realize is that like young children or even, even middle, middle childhood kids with, with ADHD will sometimes struggle so much with their interoception that they end up having like bladder and bowel incontinence because they, you know, they, they get distracted and, and they're so, they're so attuned to other things that are going on in their environment that they, for, they forget. And then they come up to the teacher or they come up to the parent. I, you know, I, I pooped. I don't know why, you know, and I know that sounds like a weird thing to talk about on your podcast, but like the issues with not trusting yourself and your body being kind of, you know, sometimes not coming on board in the way that is expected you, you take those memories and you go like eight years down the road and they're 16 and they're in eating disorder support and someone's trying to get them to be in touch with their body. And they've got these memories of shame from way, way back when they were a little kid and their teacher and the school nurse had no idea what was going on, you know? And it's stuff like that, that like, I had no idea that that existed. And, and we weren't taught it in grad school. We weren't, we weren't taught things like that in eating disorder training or at the conferences. I had to learn those things from clients, you know, and, um, I wish that our colleagues kind of understood just sort of not just where the interoception issues can be with neurodivergence, but how far back they can go into childhood and what kind of like, what kind of roots those traumas sort of plant in and can, how they can impact recovery. The relationship to one's body when experiencing an eating disorder and trying to find recovery from it is already one that is so complex and challenging. And, you know, you can say even to a person who isn't neuro neurodivergent, try and connect with your body. If they have an eating disorder, they're going to get freaked out. You know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to really be a challenge. So this is now exacerbating something that you know, this idea of self-trust um, that is incredibly important when recovering from an eating disorder. It can be incredibly scary and confusing. So when dealing with these kinds of things, how do you guide people to better trust within, within themselves, um, helping them with their recovery? How do you approach it personally? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's hard in eating disorder recovery, right? Same thing with addictions because, you know, there's this idea that, the disorder is out to get them. And the, like in, in, uh, in American addiction culture, and I've seen it said in eating disorder, uh, peer support meetings as well, that your disease is in the parking lot doing push-ups, almost like the, the, the disorder is like the devil on your shoulder or some sort of like, I don't know, poltergeist like haunting you. And so, so self-trust feels for a lot of people recovering, like, like that's something they can never have because whatever their sort of inner monologue or ideas or thoughts or urges are must be the disorder. And it's really important to sort of pull that apart. Right. Cause like, you know, there are plenty of helpful, supportive, empowering, like 
recovery aligned thoughts that can go through your head as well. And if, if, if the overarching messages don't trust yourself, you know, what kind of, what kind of recovery does that create? And so I like to use somatic experiencing with people to sort of get in line with like, not just what's going on in their body, but like what kind of, what kind of imagery pops up, what kind of meaning pops up sort of all of the different components that we use in SE, um, to sort of discern, well, you know, this urge or thought or intrusive thought or voice or desire, where is it coming from? How does it resonate in me? And do I want to go down that path, you know, and, and being able to slow it down and sort of walk through it first with a therapist and then kind of on your own. Um, it really helps sort of pull apart the disorder voice, um, from some other positive supports that we all have within ourselves. Okay, so if you say that there's this idea that people are saying, you know, my disease or my illness or whatever is sitting in the parking lot doing push-ups and it's this out-to-get-me voice and you're um, maybe challenging that thought, what what are some of the ways that you're challenging it? Like if it's not a, a separate entity, like let's just say, then what is it kind of thing? Well, and I mean, I think the thing is like, you know, people are really, it's hard for us to, to sit with the fact that we've got all sorts of thoughts and impulses and urges and conclusions going on within ourselves at once. And sometimes those are very discordant with each other, but, you know, kind of being able to hold the sort of gray area that not every thought we have is going to be one that if we apply it, it'll be self-supportive, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't trust ourselves, you know? So we can sort of hear the thought as it comes into our mind and then be like, okay, is this something that I want to do? You know, what is, is the resistance on this? Um, you know, my, my gut telling me that's going to lead me down a path back to disorder or is the resistance on it? Like, wow, I've never done that thing. And I have a healthy little bit of nervousness, but I think it'll be helpful or cool or, or get me where I want to go in life, you know? And so it's just like slowing it down, sitting with it, you know, giving yourself permission, even to like sit down with a trusted friend or a family member or therapist and kind of talk it through because sometimes when we're not used to trusting ourselves for so long, it can be really, really helpful to just have someone supportive who gets us, who wants the best for us, um, to be able to process that with and be able to sort of ask and answer the right questions to sort of discern which voice that is. And over time we kind of get to see which, you know, whether that's a helpful thought or whether that's something that we can say, okay, that's an interesting thought. I'm just going to leave that on the table, you know? And I think it takes a long time to get to that space. And uh, I think a lot of the time people struggle because it's like, well, I don't want to do this thing anymore. I don't want to think this thought, but here it is. And here I am following through with this thought and this process and everything in here. Um, and I guess learning that ability to trust yourself is a process for people who are struggling to embody what you're explaining right now what could they do in a moment where they feel like here's this negative thought coming uh here's this thing i want to do that's harmful and destructive would you say take it down to the body level first or how could they get themselves through that well okay so i would say first back up and practice whatever skills that you're considering using when you're not at that moment of distress, because we tend to learn better and we tend to sort of, it's easier to like, if you're going to go test drive a car, for example, are you going to do it on like a bright sunny day? Um, not during rush hour when there's less traffic on the road and you're well prepared and you've had like a good breakfast, or are you going to do it like right as a monsoon is coming or, you know, there's a hurricane warning and it's also rush hour. You haven't eaten anything, but you've had like three cups of coffee, you know, which way is best to test drive a car, right? You want to be, you want to be in as good a place as possible when you're flexing these new muscles and trying these new things. But there's so much, and I don't even know if I can pick one thing because, you know, everyone's so different. There's a lot in like the DBT resources. There's a lot in just like, you know, being able to rely on friends, looking back on 
things that you've solved or navigated well, or that you, you know, really amazed yourself with, with your own strengths in the past, which, you know, sometimes we don't think we have those, but when we can talk with a therapist, maybe someone who's trained in narrative, um, can really pull those out. Um, but there's a lot of ways to go with it, but I would say whatever you choose, like practice it ahead of time. So like coping ahead. Um, and I would say also like, as much as you can, um, try and have some peer support or some other support that can that can be there for you as you're kind of incorporating these new skills. Because as simple as they seem on paper, they're they're pretty tough when we're sort of applying them to ourselves. You know? Yeah, definitely. I can I can definitely say that from my own experience uh, from my recovery process. And this idea that resonates so well with me is that it's like a soccer player trying to hit the soccer ball into the goalpost you know he's not gonna he's not gonna just like get into the match on the field and get it right the first time while he's busy like with the other against the other team he actually has to sit or he or she actually has to sit on that field for hours and hours and hours outside of that time preparing and practicing so it's this idea that we don't if we're just applying these tools and techniques and this ability to connect with our body when we're in distress, it's going to maybe not be as uh, as um, accessible to us or maybe not as effective. So this idea of practicing outside of that time, you know, and, and establishing this self-trust is, is so, so important. You know, um, you use the somatic experiencing with the work in your therapy sessions and you've spoken about that you've just mentioned now narrative work. I'd love to know a little bit more about what narrative work is and how it helps. Yeah. So it's funny because um, what we think of as narrative therapy in modern times actually started with two thought leaders. One was in Australia and one was in New Zealand. Um, so, um, and it's kind of spread across to like the, you know, the U S and Canada and like the rest of the world as well. It's not super popular, especially today when we are, focused on so much like behavior driven sort of qual like quantitative, very kind of cold metrics for recovery. But what I have found, uh, and one of the reasons I love narrative so much is that it takes a client and, and sort of, you know, you, you're sort of collaborating as you walk through and go, okay, well, what are, what are the overarching expectations of what a woman should be, or a man should be, or a, a partner should be, or a lawyer should be, or just a person in society. And whatever whatever labels a person walks in with, kind of critically examining, well, you know, where did I learn that that was the should that comes with who I am, or what I want, or how I want to be in the world, and kind of picking that apart and sort of seeing, well, you know maybe you don't have to be an extrovert or maybe you, you know, you don't need to like sports or what all these things. And like, it sounds really superficial, but you know, a lot of people come into, um, not just therapy, but recovery specifically with all of these should statements on their shoulders and being able to sort of pick through and being able to sort of choose which discourses fit and which ones don't is a big part of narrative therapy. And then another piece of it is um, when you have ideas about yourself or how effective you are at life or your worth or these really big things, delving into the details and finding um, alternative ways to link the various pieces of stories or the story of your whole life, um, together, together in ways that are more, um, more affirming, make more sense, um, yield more hope, things like that. And we're not saying that certain things didn't happen and it's not toxic positivity. It's just taking the, the sort of data points, if you will, in the scheme of someone's life and sort of helping to arrange them in ways that make sense and provide a path forward that does have hope and that does have meaning and connection. That's really powerful. And it throws me back into this mindset that I, I used to find myself stuck in a lot was I was like, I spent all my life stuck in an eating disorder and I didn't get a degree and I didn't do this and I ruined my life and blah, blah. And so like developing this, I guess, narrative about myself that whenever I messed up or failed at anything, it was like, oh yeah, but, but see, it's because you screwed up the first half of your life, you know, and you're a failure. And that, that. <laughs> so yeah, just like yeah. 
really being able to see how the the stories, I guess, that we tell ourselves or that people tell us is an important element of um, how we can now show up and step forward in life. And when we can start reintegrating different ideas, different affirmations, and like you said, move away from toxic positivity and more into like a realistic but helpful mindset, it, it really helps. And, and what I hear it, that underlies a lot of that is this idea of letting go of attachment to, yes. to identities, to thoughts about ourselves, to outcomes of certain things. And yeah. this possibly speaks into the Eastern counseling modalities that you are aware of that you've presented in. What are some, some of those modalities? So that presentation was, um, it was with, uh, with Dr. Heather Zhang, who is, uh, she was one of my professors in, uh, my PhD program. And I'm, I'm kind of on a, on a break from that because I'm pursuing some other exciting things in my life right now. But we, uh, we presented on sort of the influence of non-Western modality, specifically East Asian in, uh, in sort of the West. And without going into all of the specifics, it's just really exciting that there's more and more push to uh, to elevate and sort of share the stage with modalities from all around the world, but also um, especially here in Arizona and you know other places where where there's uh, an increasing call for indigenous visibility, um, sort of bringing in um, in respectful ways uh, and also making sure to acknowledge credit for people who um, for people and communities who have had these really ancient, really important healing rituals and styles and methods, um, and even modern ones that come out of um, voices that are uh, typically underrepresented in therapy. And I think that's super, super helpful. Now, one of the things that's really hard about it is that there's this there's this discourse now about taking therapy back from like X, Y, and Z groups of people. But what we forget is that a lot of what we see as therapy today, I mean, not behaviorism, but like most of the the earlier stuff, the deeper stuff, the humanistic stuff, and a lot of the early strength-based stuff was actually created by people whose who's personally or whose families had experienced tremendous strife. And I think it's important to hold that space instead of just like whitewashing that and saying that they're, you know, that these people lived lives of immutable privilege and things like that. So I know that that's way off on a tangent, but I, I think one of the, one of the things that I really nerd out about is when I when when talking about certain methods of therapy, instead of just going in and learning the techniques, actually learning about the people who who founded them and who honed them and who gleaned their you know from their life experience something that made sense and created a working framework. Because if you kind of know how the person thought who, who created whatever that model was, you can deliver it with a, with a deeper richness and you, you practice in a way that feels so much more connected to the professional community. I can, I can just see, I mean, obviously this is a podcast, but I can see your face right now. I mean, I can see how passionate you are about this and you light up when you speak about it. You know, I'm probably going to have to invite you back sometime to do a more in-depth version of this conversation. But, um, but I mean, it speaks exactly into the, purpose of this podcast, right? Curious about recovery. And it's just this idea of just really integrating where people come from, what they've learned, what they know, so that we can really just get that that deeper understanding because the, it's almost like the deeper we go, the more we can help others. Absolutely. And I, I can I just say like, I did read up on what you're doing and I I love it because the sense of curiosity, I think people have this tendency like here in the States, I don't know if it's everywhere, but in like addiction and, and eating disorder communities and like, Oh, like fear and faith can't exist in the same place. It's not ever been that for me. It's curiosity. It, when you have curiosity, it kind of lights up your room and your space in a way that, you know, maybe fear can exist, but it can't consume you, you know? And I just, there's a light about what you do. That's really really delightful. And I think it's really important to make space for curiosity and eating disorder recovery, you know, cause it really, it really does sort of take the wind out of fear, you know? <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Uh, I really resonate with that idea. One of the things that I really resonate with the most is 
developing my sense of self and my identity throughout my life we had to it meant I had to start questioning who was I before I put all these labels, these shoulds, these blah, blah, blah. And 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 generally what I was, was I was a very curious person. <laughs> I was always asking questions. I was always wanting to try new things and play and blah, blah, blah. And, and so this idea of being curious because at the end of the day, we're just people. We're just humans. And every single one of us is just learning what we learn from other humans. And some of those humans have incredible experience and incredible resources and incredible knowledge. And if we can just keep that curious nature, then, hey, maybe along the way we'll be able to help someone. <laughs> Love that. You know, something else that I, when I was looking at your website, I just really got this incredible feeling of playfulness, you know. And I, I feel that that's carried across in the work that you do. And then as I was having this feeling, I was like, oh, what is the feeling that I'm feeling when I'm on this website? And I felt playfulness, playful. And then I saw you actually have some uh, some groups and stuff that you host, like Craft and Connect and Consultation in the Sand. And I'm like, oh, wait, this doesn't seem like your average therapist website. There's like sand pits and toys and crafts and stuff <laughs> and do you want to tell me about the the importance of this playfulness that you bring across in, in the work you do yeah i i would love to i mean i think curiosity and playfulness go hand in hand and there's something about playfulness that like it kind of helps you be a little bit more limber and um more sort of malleable and sort of aligns with growth mindedness and stuff like that, which I'm really into. And especially as someone who was told I overthought things all the time as a kid, really staying in touch with playfulness has been really, really helpful for me personally. But also, I think as a profession, we tend to be super rigid. And like, I learned that when unfortunately, I had to, um, I had to report, uh, my own therapist when I was in grad school. And so I saw, you know, I, I don't want to talk about her, but the, um, I ended up going to a bunch of board meetings for a regulatory board and seeing just how, how stiff and scared, uh, the people who got reported were. And it was very, I just, and even the way that we talk about clinical mistakes and shortcomings and, you know, how we lean in and sort of repair after rupture and stuff, people just kind of brace for impact, like they're about to get in a car crash. And so I wanted to, not just in the way that I move through the local professional community and sort of the global one, but like in my physical office space, I intentionally sought out a space that number one, I could do sand tray therapy, even with my like 13 and up clients. Like I really don't work with too many kids, you know, and it's a beautiful modality for, for clients, but also like with colleagues being able to host a space where we can sit down and we can make crafts and like everything from, you know, friendship bracelets to like, you know, painting and, and occasionally glitter when we plan and like door hangers and just like, just sort of get stuff out and do things physical and just be able to show up purely as ourselves, you know, and also with the Santray consult group, I, I feel like, you know, I'm really proud of the fact that like, when people walk into my office, especially colleagues, like they kind of walk in, they're like, I feel really good right now. And I worked really hard on that, you know? And, and the thing is like, I want people to be able to like loosen up and feel safe. And like, you know, we should be able to have like laughter and connection and the stuff that we want for our clients. And if we, if we can't do that as a professional community, then how can we offer it? You know? For, for me, what's really standing out is this idea of just, embodying the idea of joyfulness and ease and letting go and, and being our most authentic selves. And I definitely understand how useful the art of play and craft and everything. I mean, cause you know, a whole different conversation completely in the term, in the connections between our creative selves and, and people who struggle with eating disorders and how the two are severed if they're not yeah anyway we'll, we won't go <laughs> into that but what I remember the one time I was working with a client and she was going round and round and round with this thing that she was really struggling with and I just said to her what you need right now is play and I didn't understand why I was getting this feeling I was just like you you need play 
So we went to the shop and we bought clay together and she started molding with clay and she was like, this is exactly what I needed. And like, I was like, <laughs> I didn't understand where that was coming from. But sometimes, you know, I, I can also relate to this idea of using my hands in a creative way as so incredibly healing for any time I'm stuck in cyclical thinking, in fear, in eating disorder, thought patterns or, or anything like that that come up. There's obviously this space that you've created is a place that really just makes you shine. And is there anything else that really brings you joy in your life, like personally or professionally? Yeah. So this is going to sound like a weird one because I was, I was thinking about this and I think really it's just, it's connection with other therapists. Um, I've done some advocacy work on, you know, sort of helping make therapy safer and more supportive for clients and also more gentle and compassionate for therapists. And, you know, I, I wasn't doing it to, for the purpose of, you know, advancing my own voice or something like that. There were just things that I felt like it was like a burp. Like I just needed to, I needed to get it out. And, and so I did a, like some, some other work with like some colleagues and, um, occasionally someone will like re-listen to one of those other podcasts or like find something I wrote and send an email or call or like even better when, when it's a local person getting coffee with them and just sort of being able to connect and sort of see that, that those ideals and those desires for, for a professional community, I'm not the only one, you know? And so, and stuff like, you know, like this with you today, I mean, like, and you know, it might sound so simple, but it's just kind of knowing that there, there is this like, almost like a global, like web of a community of clinicians who, who want so much good and, you know, and light for, for what we offer and also for our peers. And, you know, and, and that's just, it just, I love it because I, I didn't know that I would find that earlier in my career, you know? Yeah, definitely connect with that. I mean, I've been on one or two uh, Zoom calls with people around the world where we sit and we connect as, you know, professionals and how important that is. And I can definitely feel there's sometimes and not to sound big headed or arrogant or anything like this, but there's sometimes where I feel like my job is about people coming to me and asking me how to like solve their lives and fix problems and, and blah, blah, blah. And obviously I've tried to bring that out to them, but then sometimes I'm like, but I want to talk to people smarter than me. And I want to talk to people who have like greater and more open, not to say that my clients aren't back, but just to say that it's, it's so refreshing to, to speak to people who, have the understanding and also the shared experience and at the same time this deep desire to help other people so this i, I can only i can picture it as a, a jar full of joy that's overflowing and the only way we know how to deal with it is giving it to other people you know? <laughs> like, and there's something too about like I mean, I'm right there with you. Like I see the tremendous like wisdom and expertise in my clients, just like I see in my, in my colleagues. But when I'm sitting with colleagues, I'm not, you know, I'm not there to be, to be a clinician. I'm there sort of with them and I can take my hat off and I can sort of, you know, relax and just kind of lean in and I can sort of be real with them. And I don't need to, with clients, there's a lot of, there are a lot of moving parts that we have to hold the space and look at things and track stuff. And, and it's a, a, it's a lot of work, even if they're, you know, with delightful, wonderful, amazing clients, but when you're with your colleagues and it's, it's kind of like a, a group of people that you just get each other, you can kind of relax and just experience each other, you know? It's wonderful that you've got that space and, and that, um, I mean, I'm sure other people who are listening to this, who are professionals can definitely resonate with what you're speaking to, but, you know, taking it back to the individual, the person who suffers with an eating disorder, I think a lot of the time what can happen is they are met with a counselor or a therapist who don't share that same kind of joy, that light, that maybe that fluidity and maybe are stuck in certain rigid thinking patterns or maybe even stuck in their own diet culture. And so, you know, there's a lot of people who go to seek professional help and it ends up being a really bad experience. I know that you speak into this a lot where you can say, you know, bad therapy can leave 
people scarred and avoidant of seeking further help. So what would you say to encourage these kinds of people? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great one. Because I mean, the fact is that like, there are situations where a therapist isn't a good fit. And there are also situations where therapy can be really harmful, um, because a lot of the things that you named, so I would say, like, go slow, there are people who get it. If someone doesn't get it, or is inclined not to believe you or meet you where you are, just, you know, pause and remember that you can leave, ask for honesty and transparency about what's coming up for them. Because, you know, sometimes I think, uh, discomfort, is really big for therapists when they hear that one of their colleagues may have, might have said or done something that caused some harm. You can name that it can be hard when, you know, a colleague falls down or causes hurt. And, and if, if, a, if a therapist feels threatened by you just naming that stuff, that's a big sign to just look, you know, there's other people out there, but if someone leans in and kind of sees you, like they're picking up the fact that you're, you're ready to keep working, but you also have some, some baggage, right? So like tell them that you have some trauma residue, but that you're committed to working through the bumps and ruptures. If they are tell them how supportive it is for someone to model humanness and imperfection, how it would benefit you. And if they ask for your records from the harmful past therapist, which, you know, it's, uh, that can happen. I've, I've heard of, uh, that happening to people explain that you'd like to collaborate with them on how those records will be used or looked at and the gleanings that are going to be applied. Because if they want to see that, if they want to see that body of notes to see what's wrong with you, instead of that coming from you and sort of maybe moving through it to sort of figure out where the breakdowns were collaboratively together, it might not be a good fit. But, and also just name that, like you, you're slow to trust and you feel kind of, you know, accepting of that but you know that there's like there might be some shame or some discomfort with that but like if a therapist you know right away assumes that you owe them trust after you've been through a difficult experience with another therapist or another authority figure like they they're not the one for you and and just like not everyone's an eating disorder specialist and not everyone's a couples therapy specialist and not everyone is you know not everyone works with bipolar disorder the fact is that not every therapist is a great fit for people who've had bad experiences in therapy, and that's okay. I guess so as an individual coming into therapy with uh, someone that's new and maybe is carrying that trauma, I can just have the courage, I guess, to just be completely honest and say, like, I don't know if I trust you. And like, understand that if it's the right person for you, if it's the right professional for you, then they're not going to expect you to be in a place that you're not. It's not a matter of having to be anyone for the therapist. And I think that's what a lot of people sometimes get wrong. And I see it in my clients as well. Like they'll, they'll say, you know, I do, I do this thing where uh, I allow my clients to do check-ins with me outside of our, outside of our consultations uh, because I work from a coaching perspective and a lot of the time I can see them saying stuff and it's just so happy and and I ask them, what's really going on for you? And then they're like, whoa. And then what comes out of that is often, well, I just wanted you to be proud of me. And I'm like, I'm not here to earn your, like your pride. I'm not here for you to need to prove anything to me. It's about being authentic. And so I'll meet you where you're at, not the other way around. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And I guess, I guess you're right when you just say that it's so important to recognize that it's like, shopping for shoes you might see some that you really like and put them on and then they're actually hurting your toes and you're gonna have to take them off and try another one and you know some people are very fortunate where they find the right person the first time i know from personal experience i saw like six people before i found someone that i was like this is my girl you know <laughs> um and and if i had if i had known that there was someone like you 10 years ago i probably would have come to you cuz you emanate joy which is a wonderful uh, thing to to experience with a person <laughs> and i should say it took a lot to get here too because there was there there was a lot of struggle too and i think like you know we both relate to that that like you can have you know recovery and you can have a a really you can look back over your shoulder and see the path that you just walked and you can go, Whoa, you know, but, and, and it's, and it's all still going too, but like we, we absolutely have space for joy. I once heard someone say that joy is the 
ultimate vibration of an emotion that you can experience, right? And in order to get there, you have to go through all the other emotions first. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, that kind of resonates. You know, uh, just changing the topic a little bit, I ex- I know that you have spoken about panic attacks on on your uh, website, right? And something that I see happen very often and also happen for myself is when people start challenging the rules, the rigidity, the thinking patterns, the behaviors, all of that stuff, a lot of the time they go into panic attacks or they start experiencing panic panic attacks for the first time or worse. um, And it can be very distressing. So you speak a little bit about how people can manage their own panic attacks or how a loved one can assist a person through this experience. Would you like to speak into this briefly? Yeah. I mean, I think the the biggest thing I would say is, you know, if you're going into a social situation or you're going out as you're sort of growing in recovery, if you're going with someone, like don't martyr yourself, make sure that that person kind of knows what you're going through, where you're at, but also how they can be useful if you start getting overwhelmed. And it could be as simple as like, maybe it's hard for you to make eye contact and carry on a conversation when you're starting to get flooded. So maybe if the person with you wants to check in with you, maybe instead of commanding eye contact, you could, you know, they could know that sending you a quick text message that says like, I'm just sitting here with you. Like I'm right here for you. And just like leaving it at that, like little things like that, knowing that, uh, the person who might be dining with you when you're, when you're out for a meal and you, you know, that you have to eat the thing or you have to engage in this circumstance. And it's just way too new. If your dining partner knows that like, okay, just for this hour or so, like they're going to be the one talking to the waiter, you know, cause you really don't want to, you know, if, if the waiter comes around and they say, you know, how's your food or can I top off your water? Maybe you don't want to be answering those questions right now. Cause it feels like you could cry at any second, you know? So really, really sort of tasking the person you're with, with helpful things to do, because number one, they, they love you and they care about you and they, they, they want to be there for you anyway. So giving them those tangible things is really helpful. And, and number two, if they feel like they have a mission and a purpose in that moment, like you're sitting there trying to, trying to overcome your hurdles and they're sitting there with their tasks and it sort of bond, like builds a, a solidarity and, uh, and you can get through it. And just like with the other things earlier, having those conversations ahead of time, coping ahead with stuff can be really helpful, you know, so just, just stuff like that. So this is definitely something that can be quite challenging and I speak from personal experiences, this idea of when you start struggling internally to actually say to someone else, this is how I'm struggling. Can you help me? And, and I think that that is the biggest, biggest barrier because once that person is helping you, it becomes really easy to get through that thing, right? But it's the resistance or the barrier that exists before saying, I'm not okay, I need help. So how would you challenge a thought when a person, how would you challenge this thinking process and, and encourage people to get past that barrier of just being able to say, I'm not okay, I need help? Yeah, I mean, I think it just, it comes from sort of, using that muscle group a little bit, you know, before it's a big, I need help. So it could be as easy as when you are in the, if you're driving and you're with, with someone who you're hoping to eventually ask for help from, you say, you know what, I think, um, can you reach into my bag and get my chapstick, you know, or something like that? Cause you really, you're not in such a state of distress that, you know, you need that chapstick right now, or just little things. Um, if you're at the grocery store with, uh, with a family member, you know, Hey, can you grab that off the shelf for me? It gives you that practice at asking for something because a lot of us won't ask for anything, you know, and just kind of getting kind of priming the pump. So that kind of makes it a little less scary as you ask for things that you might need that are that are bigger. So for example, the next one could be, you know, hey, I have a I have a scary doctor's appointment, or I have to go see my accountant, or I have a job interview. Is it a you know, will you be free at such and such time when I know it's over just so I can sort of decompress with you, you know, and so little things like that. And then when it's a really, really scary thing, it'll be a lot easier to sort of open that door because the door is kind of halfway open already. I, I love, love, love that concept. And that 
it, it makes me think of this idea of practicing the thing that you're afraid of in inconsequential circumstances. I remember one of my first clients years ago, I remember chatting to her and she was having fear um, leaving an abusive partner. And she, I was like, what's the thing that's stopping you? And she was like, it's fear, it's fear, it's fear. And I said, well, what else are you afraid of? And she said, I'm afraid of heights. So we organized to take her bungee jumping and she overcame her fear of heights. And then she, and then I was like, see, you can overcome fears. And then she was like, oh, yes, I can. And it was it's such a, like a strange way of doing things, but um, loving this thing of like, how can we practice the thing that we're scared of practicing in an inconsequential way, in a way that's not going to affect us emotionally or be detrimental to our process so that we can practice and teach ourselves that it's actually okay to do these things. And I love that approach. You know, I, I really, this hour has gone by so quickly. You're such an easy person to talk to. And um, I'm sure the people that come to you for therapy are get a lot of help. <laughs> so I'd just love to know if you have any messages or words of encouragement for those struggling with eating disorders that are thinking about taking the first step or maybe you have regressed and want to seek further help or anything like that. I, I mean, especially in a society that's really big into absolutes and you hear these recovery slogans about like full recovery, this, your recovery is yours and don't get caught up in other people's benchmarks, but do find safe people and let them in. And when you have little wins, make as much space for them as when you have little slips. I think there's this idolized perfect picture of what a recovered person looks like. And, and it's almost like chasing perfection and recovery is almost as bad as chasing the perfection that we had when we were in our eating disorders, because perfection is not attainable. You know? And so if you find that you, that you slip and you beating yourself up about it. And I mean, I remember I used to have um, slips and, and I would go into suicidal thinking, you know, I was like, my life is over. Da, da, da. And then when I had that little win, I'd be like, meh, it's not such a huge thing, you know, like anyone can do that. But I had to celebrate that. And I love that, that idea of celebrating the small wins, no matter how silly they seem, no matter if it seems like someone else might be able to do it with ease, celebrate yourself and the things that, that you find important in your recovery journey. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. I would love to know if there's, I mean, I know you've said some of the stuff you're working on, but is there anything else that you're currently working on and how can we find you? Um, yeah, I mean, I think right now the best way to find me is either Recourse Counseling on Facebook or recoursecounseling.com. And you can get in touch with me in those ways. And stay tuned for some other stuff that's in the works. I'm really excited that my old supervisor from before I started my own practice, David Meir, he's really into um, the neurodiversity affirming care as well. He and I are going to have some projects coming down the line. I'm going to be doing some things about supporting therapists in being more growth minded down the line. But uh, yeah, your best bet is to just look at my website and, um, and then you'll find the latest on my Facebook page as well. Oh, that's absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much. And if you ever have things that you are releasing or working on in the future, please let me know. I'd love to share it with the listeners. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. If you have liked it, share it with people who you think might benefit from listening to it as well. Don't forget to go to my Instagram page called at Curious About Recovery to find out about upcoming episodes or to browse the episodes of the past. You can also follow my page called at Kirsten Honeyball where you can get inspiration for your eating disorder recovery.